You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. If you're a qualified horticulturist, you probably studied some plant biology at TAFE. But if you're like me, you probably only learnt some of the basics like vascular systems, meristematic tissue, and the difference between monocots and dicots, which I've already discussed with Professor Ros Gledo in episode 38, Plant Biology Basics. But what about plant immunity and stress responses? We barely touched on any of this during my studies, and I've always wanted to learn more, so I invited Katja Hogard onto the show to teach myself and you as well. She's a PhD student at Imperial College in London that researches plant and aphid interactions with a focus on the plant immune system. She's an American living in the UK, as well as a science educator that I've been following on LinkedIn, who also runs the Catcher Plant Science YouTube channel, as well as Instagram and Facebook accounts. Stick around to the end of the episode if you'd like to learn about how plants deal with challenging situations, including how they defend themselves when they can't simply run away from their enemies like we can. So welcome to the show, Katja. Thank you. So can we start this episode off? I'd just like to know some of the basic processes of plant molecular biology. Can you tell us, um, you know, what's sort of going on under the hood there? Well, plant molecular biology is remarkably similar to the molecular biology of animals because all living things run on DNA. So if you have studied cell and molecular biology Even at the high school or undergraduate level, a lot of those same processes are exactly the same in plants when it comes to, say, having genes that code for proteins that translate into uh, traits of the organism. So I would say that at the very basic molecular level, plants and animals are not that different. And speaking as a molecular biologist, a lot of the very same lab techniques and supplies that we use to work on human or animal DNA, proteins, and other uh, molecular level biology is absolutely the same for plants. So you would be surprised at how similar they are. Wow, that's really funny to hear that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Can you please tell us some of the key components of a plant's immune system and how do they work together to protect the plant from pathogens and stress? Many thanks, Daniel. That's a great question. Although plants and animals are not that different at the genetic level. We all use the same four-letter code of ATGC for our genes. When it gets to the immune system, plants and animals are really different. The first thing you have to remember is that unlike animals, which have a mobile immune system, think about the white blood cells. Everyone's heard of white blood cells that travel through the bloodstream and neutrophils and other components of the human immune system that travel around and, say, fight disease and infection where it occurs. Plant cells are very stationary. If you look at plant cells under the microscope, they're mostly like little boxes stacked together. So plant cells cannot move. So in other words, the plant immune system relies on each little cell acting like its own little defensive fortress. I'd say that's one of the key differences between the more familiar human immune system and the plant immune system. So there are no mobile immune cells. So how do plants recognize when 
a disease like a fungus, bacteria, virus, or other harmful microorganism is attacking or if an insect is munching on them. Well, that's where microbe-associated molecular patterns come in. These are biological molecules in pests and pathogens that are not found in plant biology. A great example would be the protein chitin. You may have heard of this. It's the protein that makes up uh, crustaceans' shells, and it's also found in fungi and in most insects. This protein does not naturally occur in plants. So if a plant detects that there is chitin near its cells, that means it's being attacked by one of its natural enemies, like a fungus, an insect, maybe a crustacean too. I don't know. In Australia, I know you have some pretty wild, <laughs> some pretty yep. interesting wildlife. I'd love to come see it one day, but I know it's pretty interesting there. At least a person in the UK, it seems uh, pretty, pretty wild. The rumors are true. The rumors are that's true. That's true. That's true. So, um, so how do plants know that there are microbe-associated molecular patterns around. Plants have receptors on the cell surface that are like a little lock and key system that bind with these molecules when they come along. This, If they are outside the plant cell, this tells the inside of the plant cell that there's danger about. These cell receptors kick off processes inside the cell that tell the cell to start raising its defenses. And this can be anything from strengthening the cell wall to making chemicals that will make the plant taste bad, to kill off the cell in a controlled way to trap a pathogen in that part of the plant, or to make chemicals that will even kill off the insects eating it. There's also damage-associated molecular patterns, and these come from the plant itself, but this tells the plant that it's been physically damaged, like cells have been broken up, something something bad's happening to part of that plant, mm. perhaps something like a herbivore, maybe in your part of the world, a koala or a kangaroo is munching on the leaves, so it tells it there's a herbivore attacking me. So that's how the plant, that's the uh, innate plant immune system. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. That's a that's a great place to I think the next thing I'd like to know is can you tell us about how plant hormones play a ra- play a role in regulating plant immune responses to biotic and abiotic stresses? Oh, great question. So hormones are chemical messengers. Hormones are that's just a name for any chemical that acts as a messenger within the body. We learn a lot about human hormones just in basic biology in school, but plants also have hormones. One of the most important plant hormones in biotic stress responses is salicylic acid. Now, this word might be familiar because this is the main ingredient of aspirin, one of the most commonly taken medicines in the world. And it was originally extracted from willow bark. So what does salicylic acid do in the plant when it's not curing our fevers and headaches? What it does is that it controls biotic stress responses as a chemical signal. Salicylic acid is one of the first plant chemicals that's produced in response to biotic stress. And from there, the salicylic acid can work within the cell and travel to other cells to alert them that there is biotic stress around and the plant needs to start to undergoing defense processes. So salicylic acid not only 
works just to alert other cells, but it also is what's called a signaling hub in a whole network of messenger chemicals within the plant. So that's why you can add salicylic acid to plants to prime them for biotic stress. Although I haven't tried it myself, I know that some gardeners will take aspirin pills and crush them up and spray or water their plants with it to prime them as a defense against pests such as aphids. I think I might try it this summer because remember, mm. it's still winter here in the northern <laughs> hemisphere. Yeah, I think my mint could probably use some. It's getting munched on by little green caterpillars. Oh, green caterpillars. Yeah, cells. Well, actually, that's a good one, Daniel, because when it comes to chewing insects, jasmonic acid is the hormone that fights chewing insects. So this is released when plant cells are damaged. Remember we talked about the damage-associated response? Mm. So I would say that jasmonic acid is a little harder to get at. And yes, it is one of the components in what gives the lovely smell of jasmine flowers. Um, I can't think of a household product that has jasmonic acid, but this is a another plant hormone that's often associated in responses to mechanical damage, like caterpillars chewing or herbivores munching. So often those two hormones work together to mediate a response that's exactly right for the type of natural enemy attacking the plant. I'd like to talk about another thing that salicylic acid can do, and that's called um, systematic acquired resistance. So that was the idea of putting the aspirin on the plant, that repeated exposure to salicylic acid means that the plant has a higher default defense response, like the plant is just operating with raised defenses all of the time. So this is a way that plants adapt to a changing environment. If more pests around, they keep their defenses up due to systematic acquired resistance. And uh, plants can get pretty desperate. Salicylic acid also controls a process by which plants will selectively kill off part of their tissue. This is important with natural enemies like fungus and other fungus-like organisms that will infect the plant, and you'll kind of see the leaves looking all gross, but that's often because the plant's killing off part of itself to trap the uh, parasite in there and have that leaf drop off so it doesn't harm the rest of the plant. And so as you can see, plants, because they can't run away from their natural enemies, sometimes mm. have to resort to pretty extreme measures. Now, you mentioned abiotic stress. Now, um, hormones are also involved in abiotic stress, and I think the most important one to talk about is a chemical called abscisic acid, ABA as it's known. So abscisic acid is very important in the plant drought response. When plants feel drought in their roots, that is changes in water availability, they will release the hormone abscisic acid which causes a lot of responses in the plant to help it save water. So say it may grow slower, it may not divert as much water into its leaves and into developing flowers and fruit. And um, at the very tiny level that you can only see with a microscope, the plant will close its stomata. So stomata are these tiny little closable air holes on the underside of leaves that allow carbon dioxide in and oxygen out. So when plants are feeling drought stress, they'll close their stomata to make sure that less water evaporates out of the plant. So I'd say that jasmonic acid, salicylic acid, and abscisic acid are all important plant hormones and stress responses. So we talked about abiotic stresses there. 
like ha- I'm just thinking about like the temperatures, you know, like if it's a really cold, mm-hmm. I'll I'll dry my warm myself up somehow. But yeah, plants are stuck there through, mm-hmm. you know, extreme temperatures, through drought, through excess water and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. How do plants can you like expand on that? How do plants actually respond to those abiotic stresses? Great question. Here in England, we had a pretty intense, we had a very hot, dry summer, and we've had a really cold, snowy winter. So I've been watching how the plants in my own garden have been responding. But I can give you some insights into what they're doing at the physiological level. To build on what we said about ABA and drought, some of the ways that plants respond to ABA is generally going into survival mode. I mean, in all of these abiotic stresses, I'd say the thing to bear in mind is that the plant is doing its darndest not to just die. So that means it's in survival mode. It's having a tough time, but it's trying its best to survive. So it won't be producing beautiful flowers, big fruits, delicious seeds for us to eat. And you can see how that would have a knock-on effect on both gardening, like the beauty and productivity of your garden, and also in global food security, if important plants that we rely on for our daily calories are in the survival mode, they're not going to make lots of cereals, um, say crops for oil and other things that we rely on as our basic food sources. So in the case of high temperature, plants tend to shut down a lot of their physiological processes to reduce what's called oxidative stress on the plant. This is where free radicals are produced that can cause cellular damage. And because many processes get speeded up at high temperature, the plants end up producing more free radicals, which is in a way harming themselves in their own DNA. So what they do in response is to make antioxidants to mop up the free radicals, like more anthocyanins. That's why you may have noticed that your drought and heat stress plants get a darker color and their leaves may even turn purple. They reduce photosynthesis and overall reduce their productivity. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, we have extreme cold. And many plants are not able to deal with cold, especially if they evolve in places that hardly ever freeze or just have mild winters or a steady year-round temperature. However, plants like the native plants here in northern Europe, they have evolved survival strategies. So why is freezing dangerous to plants? That's because a plant cell is mostly water, and as you probably know from anyone who's ever made ice cubes at home, water expands. So when water inside a cell expands, that actually rips the cell open, kills the cell, and kills off the part of the plant where the cells were ripped open. It's not a pretty picture, trust me. A bunch of my succulents, sadly, uh, didn't make it through this freeze. So uh, what plants do is that as the temperature generally gradually changes from autumn to winter here in the northern hemisphere, the plants will take these these um, seasonal changes and they will respond by pumping more soluble sugars and amino acids into their cells. This changes the freezing point and viscosity of the cytoplasm. That's the watery stuff inside the cell. It's uh, Think of it as a natural form of antifreeze. So even if it freezes, by that time, their cells are so pumped full of all these other soluble natural chemicals that they do not freeze. So that's how they can save themselves. Also, they may lose their leaves and go into a period of dormancy where they don't grow much, so they don't have much young, fresh tissue that could easily be destroyed by frost. 
Another uh, abiotic stress that's worth mentioning is soil nutrition. Now, as you know, soil nutrition can get depleted through various means like over-farming or just simply that the soil was not very nutritious to begin with. Overall, the plant does go into survival mode, and overall it has stunted growth, lower productivity, and may also overdevelop its root system instead of its shoot system to try to search for nutrients in the soil. So that's a little overview of how plants respond mm. to the abiotic stresses. So whereas when it's defending against a fungal pathogen or an insect or something like that, it's actually trying to defend itself. Mm -hmm. Whereas right yes. now with these abiotic stresses, they're really just trying to bunker down and hold on until that passes because there's nothing to defend against. Mm -hmm. That's a great summary, Daniel. Exactly. One is actively defending. The other is just going into survival mode and trying not to die during that time, basically. <laughs> Was there anything else to say in regards to the biotic pests? Well, I can tell you about some of plants' natural enemies. So anybody who's gardened, I'm sure, has run into some pests. But um, biotic stresses come from a few major categories. Uh, plants can be infected with bacteria, viruses, fungi, and a wide variety of fungus-like organisms. These fungus-like organisms include the infamous Irish potato plight, which is a microorganism mm. called a phytoptera. Uh, it looks a little like a fungus, but totally different evolutionary origin and all. Huh. Yeah, so it, but it kind of looks the same to the naked eye when you're out in the garden. The plant looks very yucky and rotten and all. It's because these fungi and fungus-like organisms tend to eat the plant while it's still alive. It's pretty gruesome. Like they will land on there as a spore, germinate, and then kind of take over the plant with their tentacles that suck nutrient out of it. And these little tentacles are called hyphae. So they're a pretty insidious threat to plants. So many, there's been a lot of scientific research on what chemicals and what strategies plants use to defeat fungi and fungus-like organisms. When it comes to viruses, they work a lot like human viruses. They take over the cell's means of production and force it to churn out more viruses. This is just how um, human viruses work too, more or less. A lot of viral diseases of plants are characterized by weird coloration. For example, those beautiful red and white Dutch tulips that you may see in an old European painting, those are the result of a viral infection that made the plant produce different colors. And uh, I know that bacterial diseases of plants are a little more common in the tropics, but likewise, they can kind of lead to plants having weird coloration and also having um, malformed flowers that don't result in fruit. So insects are something I know a lot about because my PhD project at Imperial College London focuses on the interactions between pea aphids and plants. In particular, I'm looking at a plant called Metacago truncatula, which is a type of clover. So these, so insects can be classified as either sucking or chewing. So sucking, they're like aphids. They often have a mouth part that's like a straw that they poke into the plant and get into the phloem of the plant. That's the sort of circulatory system of the plant that transports sugars and nutrients around the plant. So instead of the plant getting those sugars and nutrients it worked hard to make through photosynthesis, 
the sucking insects like aphids are stealing it with their little straws. And that's one reason they can be dangerous to plants, just stealing its nutrition. But another way they can be dangerous is they're a bit like mosquitoes are to humans. They can spread viruses on their mouth parts. So this aphids and other sucking insects are also uh, dangerous because they will spread dangerous viruses between plants, not just the damage mm. they inflict. And chewing aphids, a great comparison would be, say, caterpillars and some types of beetles will chew on your plants and like bite holes in them. So how so plants can defend themselves against these natural enemies in more ways than simply uh, making a defense response. Many plants have evolved thick cuticles. So this is the waxy layer on a plant. So a lot of those waxy cuticles serve to make the plant less appealing to uh, herbivores to munch on. And also the thick waxy cuticle makes it harder for microbial pests to get into the tissues of the plant. Another thing plant have, plants have is trichomes. So I don't know if you have stinging nettles there in Australia, but I'm sure you have many plants that look sort of spiky or fuzzy. Because these um, trichomes, which are the microscopic hair-like cells on the surface of plants, are also useful for protecting against strong sunlight. And I know it's a very sunny place there, too. So a lot of plants, say in desert environments, have a kind of fuzzy or woolly appearance. And these are trichomes. Also, trichomes are good because they make the plant just uncomfortable to walk on, or the trichomes can be filled with chemicals that when a insect or herbivore touches it, it stings them and is unpleasant and makes them not want to eat it. Now, trust me, you don't mm. want to touch a stinging nettle, let alone no. eat it without proper processing <laughs> here. Although they are good to eat, you have to process them, like rub them on cloth to get rid of, rid of those dangerous trichomes. So yes, those are some of the natural enemies of plants we should be aware of. Mm-hmm. Right. So you mentioned the cuticles there and mm-hmm. also these trichromes. Like, what is it that makes one plant resistant and another? Is that just like, are we talking about evolution here? Is that the reason why some plants are resistant to certain pests and diseases, whereas other plants are not? Broadly, yes. Plants are usually quite well adapted to their local environment that they came from. So that's why, say, sometimes if we take one plant from one part of the world and bring it to another part of the world, we may find that it has no defense against the local natural enemies, the local diseases and pests, or we might find that it's totally immune because the local Mm. pests and diseases don't even know what this thing is. So they just leave it alone. They don't recognize it as food. You know, an Australian example is nearby here. We have a eucalyptus in a neighbor's yard. And that thing, it has no natural enemies, no herbivores eat it, no Mm. diseases get on it. Thing is totally bomb proof, it seems. But I also know that, say, I've tried um, growing some plants from Texas in the USA here from seed, and those poor plants have gotten wiped out by odd diseases and insects that don't touch our local things. So I would say that broadly, plants evolve to defend themselves against the conditions that their ancestors involved in. But there's another aspect of the plant immune system that's worth talking about, and that's the R gene and effector system. We're going to zero in on the molecular side of things again. So as you know, all living things have a genetic code, and no two individuals are unique. 
in plants, there are genes called R genes, which stand for resistance genes. These are genes that have evolved to grant resistance to specific pathogens and pests. For example, there may be an R gene in a potato that protects it against potato blight. In my case, I'm looking at an R gene in Metacago that gives it a defense response that effectively kills off and stops the reproduction of one of the most common types of aphids in Europe. So as you can see, these R genes, um, they, they are like a kind of molecular switches that turn on and off a specialized defense response that is usually only turned on when that pest or pathogen is present because these defense responses can be quite uh, costly to the plant in terms of changing their metabolism, of making chemicals they wouldn't normally make. So that's why these R-gene responses are tightly controlled. Now, what, what is an effector? So effectors, those are biological molecules from pests and pathogens that have evolved to try to shut down or sneak around the innate immune system that we learned about in the first part of this talk. So these can be a wide range of different biological molecules, but they all have that intended function. However, some of these effectors will directly or indirectly interact with the R gene products and this interaction is what turns on the molecular defense switch that leads to the specialized defense response against that pest or pathogen. So most plants do have an innate immune system and also a set of R genes that are usually well evolved to combat the pest and pathogens that this plant evolved with in its native habitat. So how does cultivation play into that with the R gene. Like if we've got two cultivars of the same species, mm -hmm. one of them is resistant to a pest and one of them isn't. Is that could that be like any one of the things that we've talked about today or is yes. that going to be okay. I would I would say most likely it's differences in R genes because if it's the same okay. species in a different cultivar, usually cultivar or populations within a species may have their own unique set of R genes. And those can be through selective breeding and even of genetic engineering, too, where you take an R gene from one plant and put it in another to give it resistance. But I don't know um, how many sort of genetically engineered garden plants we have. I don't mm. think they're that common at this point. Yeah, right. Yes, it's mainly it's crops. usually down to R genes. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is it true, Katja, that mm -hmm. plants can sort of warn each other when there is a pest or disease around? That's very true. I'm glad you asked about that, Daniel, because I have some really funny and intriguing examples to share with you. So there, these are called volatile chemicals. Now, volatile comes from the word volar, to fly, which is the word for to fly in Latin and Spanish and Italian. So think of them as flying hormones. These are hormones that fly through the air. And why would hormones need to fly through the air? Well, this enables plants in one place to warn plants in a nearby place that there is danger around. So a, a very relatable example is mowing a lawn. Now, many people think that the smell of freshly cut grass is very pleasant and refreshing. However, 
That scent is actually green leaf volatiles that are released by the grass when it's physically damaged. And these green leaf volatiles drift to other plants and warn them that herbivores, or in this case, a lawnmower, is attacking the grass. So they would start uh, raising their defenses against herbivores. So that's a good example. And another one that I particularly like, just because it's so weird and it involves so many different species at the same time, is methyl jasminate. Some species of plants will release a volatile chemical called methyl jasminate when caterpillars start munching on the leaves. This methyl jasminate goes into the air and what it does is it attracts parasitic wasps that feed on the caterpillars. So this means that the plant basically calls in reinforcements from wasps to come and attack kill and eat these caterpillars on the plant and remove its pest problem. Now, the wasps are happy because they found a new food source and they were called over to say, hey, look, there's caterpillars here. Come get them. So this is, these would be the same kind of parasitic wasps that you can buy for your garden in some places. So it's saving you money on your your, uh, biological controls. Certainly is, yes. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a good example there. So we mentioned plant nutrition earlier when we talked about abiotic stresses, Mm -hmm. but how does that nutrition play into, you know, the the actual defense system of the plant? Well, uh, when it comes to plant nutrition, I would say that nutrition stress is kind of an abiotic stress. So with plants, Generally, if you can give them good nutrition, they will be more able to defend themselves against both biotic and abiotic stress. So a stressed plant is, but this is kind of ironic, but plants that are often under stress uh, will have more nutritions that are beneficial to us, the consumers. So Mm -hmm. uh, think about the example from earlier about the antioxidants and anthocyanins. So when a plant is stressed by, say, high temperature and high light, it might make more anthocyanins, which makes the plant turn generally a darker color. It might make the leaves that you're eating, for example, leafy green. It might make them more kind of purplish because of the anthocyanins are often the same chemicals that give plants their blue and purple colors. And same with fruit. So when plants are stressed, they do tend to make more antioxidants. So that means when we eat the parts of the plants that contain these, they're healthier for us because anthocyanins also mop up free radicals in our bodies and can help prevent against cancer, inflammation, and signs of aging too. Also, when plant, some of the plant defense compounds that I've studied are also the same components in herbal medicine and plant-based medicine. Like, say, some of these things like uh, flavonoids and all, like many of the plant defense compounds are the same things that can be used as medicinal properties for us. Think about the salicylic acid as a great example, too. Salicylic acid is a basis of aspirin. So, interestingly enough, perhaps if your aim is to have more nutritious plants, subjecting them to controlled amounts of stress might be the answer to optimize the nutrition and deliciousness of your crops, weirdly enough. I haven't (laughs) been sadistic enough to do this to any of my plants, but I think it's something that does bear investigation. But back to the plant's point of view and plant nutrition. 
Overall, if a plant has all the nutrients it needs to thrive, it is better able to defend against um, drought, cold, heat, um, water logging, all of the different viruses, bacteria, fungi, insects. And this is because it will have all the nutrients to keep its baseline health going and will also have all the raw materials to make defensive chemicals or to grow thicker cuticles or to make more trichomes. So if those bases are covered, the plant will be better able to defend itself. So when it comes to plant nutrition, we can think of plants and plants nutrition as primary, secondary, and micronutrients. Now, the primary nutrients would be like your standard garden fertilizer, which is nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, and uh, potassium. So that would be like your NPK fertilizer. That just is kind of the general plant nutrition that's usually the limiting factor unless you add more in, and that mm. overall fosters more leafy growth and the production of leaves and shoot growth. So that would be like carbs, fats, and proteins for humans. Yeah, good, good analogy. So then the secondary nutrition is often things like calcium, magnesium, and sulfur. And adding these calcium, magnesium, and sulfur to a plant's soil, that will help it with, say, fruit and flower formation especially. So often if you have a plant that, say, hasn't flowered or produced fruit in a long time, I would recommend putting something like blood, fish, and bone meal on it if you're comfortable using that in your garden. It is all natural, but, you know, if you don't want to use animal products, I think there are other ways you can add that in. That has lots of calcium and magnesium, which can often cause a fruit tree that hasn't borne much fruit in years to suddenly give you a bumper crop because that's a limiting factor. But Mm. also, say, uh, magnesium is used in um, the making of chloroplasts and the photosynthesis system. So say adding magnesium can help the plant um, ramp up its photosynthesis and overall produce more sugar and more nutrients for itself. And uh, there are also micronutrients in the form of often metals like zinc, boron, copper, iron, selenium, and cobalt. These have to be added very carefully because too much can be toxic to a plant. But these are often components of the metabolic processes that produce the defense compounds. So I'd say that if you want to help your plants resist stress and pests, getting the nutrition right is fundamental. Mm, Well said. Sometimes I've even worked with people who will see a fruit tree that's underperforming and they'll say something like, hey, let's get some magnesium on it or something like that. Now, they haven't done a soil test or anything like that, and who knows how much magnesium they're going to put on it. So I'd just like to point out that if you're going to be putting specific nutrients on rather than like Mm -hmm. a broad spectrum, um, you know, organic fertilizer, just try and get a soil test if you can, or just use broad spectrum stuff because you can actually upset the balance. I totally agree, Daniel. That's a great note of caution. I tend to use um, kind of pre-mixed fertilizers or natural products like blood, fish, and bone meal. Mm. So uh, yes, I haven't run into that, but I think if you were, say, taking almost like your kind of lab chemical that's pure magnesium and putting it on there, you definitely want to be careful. Mm, I think so. Mm -hmm. So... How can we use plant breeding and genetic engineering to improve immunity to specific issues and also just general issues as well? That is such an important question. And that's really one of the most important topics in plant biology fundamental research these days. 
is how can we help plants become more resistant to the abiotic stress that's being brought on by climate change in a lot of places. Because if you think about it, climate change results in events like floods, droughts, more extreme winters and hotter summers, all of the abiotic stresses we've just covered. Another abiotic stress we haven't delved into, but is often a knock-on effect of climate change, is increased soil salinity. And this can happen when an area that does, that has not received a lot of natural precipitation is irrigated a lot, and say salt and other minerals that were dissolved in the irrigation water can build up in the soil over many years to the point that you cannot grow plants in it anymore because it's too salty. This, that, this tends not to happen so much naturally, but it is often a consequence of irrigating um, cropland for a long time in a place that doesn't naturally receive much precipitation. So there is so much exciting research going on all around the world to either look at the uh, genetic and physiological processes that allow plants to be more resilient against the abiotic stresses so that we can um, we can engineer imp economically important plants to have some of these similar traits. Now, I know that genetically engineered crops can be controversial, but in my humble opinion, I think it's just one component of making agriculture more sustainable. We have to look at the bigger picture of using land responsibly, of using irrigation in a smarter, more efficient way, and perhaps focusing more on growing crops in places that are actually a good fit for the natural environment. I think all of those things have their place to play as well as genetically engineering plants to make them more resilient. So we don't have mm -hmm. to water them so much, or we don't have to use so much fertilizer and pesticide on them to help them grow. So yes, I'd say that those are all very important things and say these can be anything from a specific gene that makes it more resistant to even uh, re-engineering the whole photosynthesis process in some plants, in some economically important plant species to make them better suited to hot and dry climates. There's just a, just a wide range of exciting research going on to make plants more abiotic stress resistant. Mm. Then when we look at what research is going on to make plants more resilient against biotic stress, there the emphasis tends to be on finding our genes for um, pests and diseases that impact economically important plants. I've mentioned the potato blight a few times, and that is still an ongoing threat to potato production around the world. So research that's looking at our genes, especially from, say, wild varieties of potatoes, and how to add those R genes into domestic potatoes that have high-yield uh, commercially important tubers, that is a very hot topic in plant science. So you might be wondering why not just crossbreed some of these plants that have the useful R genes? Well, um, crossbreeding plants can be pretty hit and miss, like what mix of genes will you get in the offspring? And that can be a very a lengthy process, taking even decades to get properly resistant plants. But if you can find are genes and closely related species like a wild potato versus a domestic potato and make transgenic potatoes that contain, say, multiple R genes. So I know that there are transgenic potatoes where they've managed to stack 
three R genes from three different wild potato species and put it in an economically important one. And then it has a, a much broader spectrum of resistance against more varieties of potato blight. So as you can see, that cuts through a lot of the unnecessary crossbreeding and um, work to try to get all of those genes into one potato. Mm. And uh, that's, I think it's a good idea personally. Uh, yes. And then with cross, crossbreeding is, is also still pretty useful for um, especially say the abiotic stress traits as well. So I'd say that the two techniques should be used together to produce the best and most uh, sensible crops for the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, I think that sometimes people who have never grown food or maybe they have a backyard food that supplements their diet, and this is no shade against people who have this opinion, but I think that sometimes it's easy to just make genetically modified you know, foods the boogeyman. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's not so factual and maybe we need to think about it a little bit harder because a lot of people died in Ireland during the potato famine. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, we're never that far away from a massive catastrophe happening. So I think that having resilient crops is probably not a bad idea as we move into the 21st century. I'm glad to hear you have a more balanced opinion on that, Daniel. And I hope that our listeners will um, sit back and reflect on some of the views they might hold about GMOs and their place in the future of sustainable agriculture after hearing this. Do your research, as they say on the internet. Well, um, I would say that you can do your research on the internet by reading um, some scientific papers about it. Uh, a lot of these are actually publicly available. You can see them for free. And I think that I do encourage people to educate themselves and be curious about what are GMOs, what's the real motivation in making GMOs, uh, what what changes do these plants undergo? We often hear the word like frankenfood which makes you Mm. think of some strange, scary, unnatural plant. But most transgenic plants look and behave exactly like their non-transgenic counterparts, except that they may have this R gene or set of R genes. It means that they produce some slightly different chemicals or responses when an aphid lands on them and starts feeding. Mm. So uh, all of these things should be rigorously tested before they're ever put out in the agricultural world or used for any kind of... um, human food source. I mean, they need to undergo rigorous testing, but I think it's important to research how these R genes work and how we can use them to make crops more pest resistant. Yeah, I completely agree. There's no silver bullet. No one's advocating for only GM crops. I think we're just advocating for the option to have that there. Mm-hmm. Sensible use of them. Yeah. All right. So what would you like to talk about next? So I want to move on to soil microorganisms and other beneficial organisms. Like how do other organisms impact plant immunity and stress uh, resistance, you know, beyond just eliciting those chemical responses from the plant? Mm -hmm. Great question. So most, you may have heard of this word microbiome. Microbiome is quite a buzzword in in the world of human health these days because microbiome means the community of microbes that live outside us and inside us that keep us healthy. Now, uh, the human microbiome has been linked to all manner of health conditions, like say if you have the right combination 
of microbes you might be protected against uh, mental and physical health disorders, which is pretty exciting. And the very same principle applies to plants. Plants also have a complex microbiome. You can find this microbiome uh, living between the cells in tissue uh, as endophytes. That's a term for these kind of microbes that live in the gaps between the cells, and they often help prime the immune system and help keep the plant healthy. And in the root system, of course, we have the mycorrhiza. So mycorrhiza, those are microorganisms that live alongside the plant in symbiosis with the roots. And these mycorrhiza have a wide range of functions. For example, they overall increase the surface area of the roots. And by increasing the surface area, this means the plant can absorb more water and more nutrients from the soil than its roots alone could do. Also, these interactions with the uh, mycorrhiza and other soil microbes, it may not necessarily be that closely associated, but they're still there. They do help change gene expression in the plants through their kind of cell-to-cell -cell interactions that can help the plant be more resistant against disease and stress. And uh, the combination of microbes tend to be highly specific to the plant. Even between populations of plants in the same species, they may have different compositions of microbiomes. An interesting trend that I did look into in preparation for this chat we're having today because this microbiome of plants is a little outside my expertise, but I'm curious about it, is that microbes from less intensively farmed land tend to offer more protection against stress and disease than the soil microbiome uh, composition of intensively farmed or intensively managed farmland. So this gives rise to the idea that perhaps we could go to less intensively farmed places and re-inoculate some of the intensively farmed land with these microbes to make it healthier and help the plants become more resilient. Kind of like a probiotic. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a bit, yeah, exactly like a probiotic for humans. Great. That's a great comparison. And uh, you can buy mycorrhiza to add to your plants in your garden. And there's some controversy over this because some conservationists and ecologists are warning us not to do this because we might be introducing non-native mycorrhiza to our gardens that might upset the natural balance of mycorrhiza found in the native soil. So this mycorrhiza, say if you have a flower bed where, where things are doing quite well, you suddenly plant a new rose and add this commercial mycorrhiza, that mycorrhiza could go and start out-competing the native mycorrhiza, and you might find that the rest of your flower bed starts getting sick and dying off because it's been out-competed. So I would say that uh, use with caution when introducing new mycorrhiza into an otherwise healthy garden. I would say it's probably a safer bet if you're, say, um, taking a plot of land that hasn't been gardened in a long time or you're turning it into a new garden, there you might want to try adding mycorrhiza to it. But if it's working well in your garden, I would urge you not to disturb the balance if it seems to be benefiting your plants overall. Yes. Yeah, so there, there, is, there is so much we don't yet know about the mycorrhiza, the microbiome, and the soil 
microbes that live in harmony with plants, but it there's research being published every day that shows that it is a really important component of plant health that deserves more research and more study to understand how it all works. Mm-hmm. Well said. Thank you. So let's say, okay, picture me in my garden now. I'm mm-hmm. thinking, okay, so now I have all of this knowledge. How do I put it into practice? Like, How do I practically use this knowledge to grow healthier plants? Well, I would say that some ways we can apply this knowledge is by keeping an eye on pests and environmental stresses in our garden. And I'd say that one of the most important things a gardener can do, especially if you want to garden organically, is to make sure that your plants receive good nutrition, like we discussed with the primary, secondary, and micronutrients. So you can do some research online and see what commercially made fertilizers or raw ingredients you might like to use to help give your plants that support so that they can be more resilient against the uh, vagaries of the seasons and pests and pathogens. Another thing I would urge you to look into is how to use, like invest in a good irrigation or watering system for your garden, especially if you live in a place where you can have hot summers. So um, I recommend these soaker hoses, which are kind of these porous hoses that you lay out amongst your plants in the vegetable or flower garden. And you can time these so that they will release um, a certain amount of water, kind of soaking it into the ground directly. Because if you think about it, a sprinkler may look cool, but it's like a fountain that's spraying water everywhere and Mm. it's evaporating and just landing on the leaves. Mm -hmm. What's great about a soaker hose is that it's next to the ground, so you're delivering water directly to the roots of the plant. And you can also um, water them at night when you're less likely to experience so much water loss through evaporation. So I'd say just making sure that plants have all the tools they need to do well is a great starting place. However, I do also have some tips for combating pests and pathogens. Um, I would recommend looking into companion planting. So this is where you plant a group of plants that are even more delicious than your main crop for the pests or pathogens that are plaguing your main crop. Like say we grow some, let's see, what what are they called? They're called amsoy greens. They're a, a delicious type of Asian mustard. And here in England, in the summer, flea beetles, which are tiny black beetles, can be a problem, That and they will attack other leafy crops. But if you grow a patch of leafy crops that they really like, the beetles will actually focus on eating that patch, like your kind of sacrificial offering to them, and you won't have as heavy infestation on your other plants. Another thing that is surprisingly effective, say if you have aphids on things like pepper plants in your greenhouse, is simply to place them outside if it's warm weather for a week or so. If you place these aphid and whitefly infested plants outside, the whitefly will often just leave and go find some wild plants to attack, or uh, wasps will come along and hunt and eat the aphids. So often just putting your plants outside for a while is a good way to get them cleaned off like just to clean the pests off by letting the natural predators attack them. Because fewer of those natural predators tend to venture inside greenhouses. So that's something I've found to be pretty effective. Hmm. Another thing to look into is making your own mild 
um, pesticide sprays using herbal ingredients. In my research on plant defense responses, I realized that many natural herbs here in my own garden and growing wild in the hedgerows nearby can be made into strong herbal teas that you can use as a spray on your plants in the greenhouse. And this just means that there's more of these volatile chemicals around that say some of them are like plant alarm signals that cause your plants in the greenhouse to raise their defenses. Or they're just scents that the insect pests dislike so they don't want to come into the greenhouse. Like say there's a plant here called tansy that has a pretty strong smell that I've made tansy tea from and used that in there. And also um, ornamental geraniums, they give off a scent that can deter some insect pests as well. So you might want to consider adding and looking into what ornamental plants you can grow as companion plants that give off volatile chemicals that keep insect pests away. So there are just all kinds of interesting strategies. I don't know how many of these could be scaled up to use at the commercial level, but mm. I'd say they are well worth trying out for the adventurous home gardener. Yeah. So it seems like it's the smelly plants that are often the ones with these mm. compounds, you know, these oily plants. Very true. Yes, and uh, I just want to say if anybody would like to learn more fun plant facts with me or gardening tips, I have a social media presence called Catch a Plant Scientist. So I have an Instagram account and a Facebook page, as well as a YouTube page where I post some videos from and photos from my garden, along with essays that I've written where I take uh, topics in plant science and botany and break them down so that anybody can understand them and apply some of this knowledge to their own gardens. Absolutely. There will be links in the show notes for listeners to check that out. Many thanks, Daniel. Thanks so much for your time, Katja. Great episode. Really enjoyed this. Oh, thank you. Well, it was an honor being on your show. Thank you so much for reaching out to me and having me. I, I'm really passionate about plants, and I like to share that enthusiasm and curiosity with other plant lovers. As always, check the show notes for relevant links to learn more about this episode's guest, Katja Hogard. If you're a professional plant person that's open to new work, whether that's in a scientific laboratory, designing gardens, or waving a brush cutter around a park all day, head to hortpeople.com and upload your resume. Specify the types of work you're looking for and relax while employers offer you roles that match your skills and goals. 